This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Alexis Okiowo, a writer for The New Yorker, is joined in conversation by Mimi Locke to discuss the stories of ordinary people fighting extremism in Africa. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. coming out tonight. I really appreciated, um, I really appreciate this book. Um, it was such an absorbing and thought-provoking read and um, I'm just going to give a quick overview and we're definitely going to be talking about the book. We'll be, Alexis will be reading some excerpts and we'll be getting into uh, some aspects of the process and some of the, the subjects, the protagonists at the center of these um, narratives. But, um, but first of all, I um, just want to give a quick overview um, of A Moonless Starless Sky. Based on the five years that she spent living and reporting from across Africa, Alexis wove together these four narratives that form a powerful tapestry of the continent today. A young Ugandan couple, both kidnapping victims of Joseph Kony's Lord's Resistance Army, a Mauritanian waging a lonely campaign against modern-day slavery, women basketball players flourishing amid war-torn Somalia, despite threats against their lives, and a dual portrait of a young Nigerian girl who who escapes the clutches of Boko Haram and a government clerk who decides to fight back. Tell me you don't want to pick up a copy of this book. It's so... I mean, I was just like... saw the back of this and I thought, oh, my God, I have to read these. But I also have a, a vested personal and professional interest because uh, putting human stories at the center of human rights issues is what my organization does as well. And in a slightly different way, we use oral histories. But, um, but it's, um, it, it, was so, uh, it was so enriching and, um, and as I said, thought-provoking reading the, the, these, these narratives and the way that you wove together these very human stories, but also were able to provide really in a really accessible um, but thoughtful way the the broader context for each of these stories. So I want to take a couple of steps back and ask you um, in your preface to the book, your your first line um, is, I didn't plan on becoming obsessed with Africa. So, but you ended up spending uh, 10 months interning at a Ugandan newspaper um, when you were at Princeton and then you spent oh, so after Princeton and then you spent several more years in and then you decided to go back five years later and spend several more years um, with Nigeria as your home base so how did how did this start for you what was the road that led you to this book oh the road that led um, so yeah after I finished college I I knew I wanted to be a journalist I was interested in journalism I worked at the student paper the um, alternative weekly and, but I was pretty sure I was not going to be able to get a job in New York. Um, but I knew also that um, I was interested in being abroad. I had studied abroad in London. And um, an opportunity came up to apply for an internship 
um, in Africa, there's a program called Princeton Africa, and you could apply for different internships at NGOs. And there were two media internships, um, one in South Africa and one in Uganda, and I got the one in Uganda. And, uh, you know, when I got there, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know much about the country. I didn't know what it would be like. Um, and then I was just completely enthralled. I mean, uh, I was working as like a junior reporter, and they sent me around to cover everything from like environmental protests to the aftermath of a civil war that um, was going on, which had been started by the LRA, Joseph Kony's Lord's Resistance Army. And so I was learning to report, um, just kind of thrown into it. And I went all over the country, and it was really exciting. And I thought, like, this is... This is what I want to do. And so I stayed for actually for another year after the internship. And then I left. Um, I um, reported in Mexico. And then I went back to New York for a while. But then I realized that, um, that you know, I, I, had to, I had to get back to the continent. And so it was my second time in Africa, um, living in Nigeria, r r traveling all over that the genesis of this book started to form. Mm -hmm. And when you were traveling and reporting, what did you know that the stories were gonna end up being a book or did that kind of take shape as you were doing your quote unquote day job? Or, yeah. or was that your day job? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I realized that I ha had the seeds for a book when I was reporting on um, the Chiba kidnapping in the spring of 2014. That was when 300 plus girls were kidnapped by the terrorist group Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria. And I went there to report on it. And I was focusing specifically on how people were living their lives amid um, chaos, um, amid a terrorist uprising. And uh, specifically I was focusing on the girls who had um, gone to school and then been abducted by terrorists simply for going to school, and who were resisting in their own way by going back to school. And then I was also focusing on a man um, who had become part of one of the largest vigilante movements um, probably, in, probably in the world um, in the face of a you know incompetent government and military, they decided that they would fight Boko Haram themselves. And so I realized um, with these stories, um, looking back on other stories I had done, I was often drawn to extreme situations, um, but not because like I wanted the adrenaline rush or I was like drawn to war, but because I was interested in what extreme situations do to people. Um, what kind of decisions people make when they're thrown into an extraordinary circumstance, how they rise or don't rise to the occasion, um, what choices they make to protect their families and preserve their, their ways of life. Um, and so when thinking about the stories that I chose for this book, these are all people who stayed in my mind because, not only because of the extraordinary things they went through, but also how they chose to live and resist amid these situations and how they came through to the other side uh, and tried to make their lives normal again. Mm, thanks. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the real strengths of the book is that we get different um, manifestations of what resistance looks like. And I think something that's really worth noting um, in this book that I think is quite quite rare is that we have examples of these ordinary men, women, I think, uh, women and men, I should say. And I love the fact that ordinary is in the title just to, you know, um, 
just to kind of hammer home the fact that this this could be this could be any of us. Um, it, Save for you actually use the phrase, there I go, but for the grace of God or twist of fate, circumstance. Um, but um, uh, but I think what the strength of the book is that not only do you see different uh, different manifestations of what resistance looks like, but you don't glorify any single person, even though there are some, um, some of these uh, folks like um, Biram who... Uh, who could easily be portrayed as waging a one-man crusade against slavery in Mauritania, his work is only possible because of all the work that's, that was done by his, the previous generations of, um, of activists and also this huge, this huge support network he has and a very understanding wife as yeah. well, right, um, who never sees him because he has all these people coming to his house and telling him his problems. But before we, before we get... Um, into that, um, I was wondering whether you would be willing to share an excerpt from Eunice and Bosco's story. Maybe talk about um, this is the first narrative in the book, um, and this has got a great title. Um, this chapter is called Uganda, an LRA love story. An LRA love story. The moonless, starless sky was bright the evening Eunice met Bosco in the forests of southern Sudan. The year was 1996, and Eunice had been kidnapped two weeks earlier from a school in a town called Aboke in northern Uganda by men who called themselves the Lord's Resistance Army. Founded by a young man named Joseph Kony in 1987, the LRA was raiding villages in Uganda's north and abducting children while routing the Ugandan army. Eunice was a thoughtful girl of 15, with inquisitive eyes and closely cropped hair, and she had been visiting her older sister at a girls' boarding school when rebels surrounded the building. The men, who were really boys if you looked at them closely, tied the girls together with a rope and forced them to trek through the forests of northern Uganda on the way to Sudan for over a week while they, while they cooked, did laundry, and fetched water for them. Eunice was frightened and exhausted, she was still wearing the blue cotton skirt, her best one, and the matching blouse that she had thought would impress her sister's friends. Eunice wanted to attend their school one day too, be among these accomplished girls, and she had hoped to show them that she could fit in, be smart and interesting, just like they did. The girls eventually crossed, crossed into Sudan and stopped in an area of tall grass and thick looming trees. More men emerged, including Kony. Rebels began plucking girls from the group, choosing the prettiest ones first. Eunice watched with a swelling sense of dread. There was nowhere to run. They were everywhere. A boy named Bosco, who looked like he was no older than 17, appeared in front of her. He was wearing rain boots, a green military uniform that slouched on his thin frame, and a matching cap over bushy hair. Another rebel, who seemed like he was one of the men in charge, nudged Bosco closer to Eunice and told him, this will be your wife. Eunice was still. She felt paralyzed. She had nearly just died when the Ugandan military emerged out of nowhere and fired gunshots at the rebels as they led the girls through the bush. And death, she thought, would make more sense than what was happening to her right now. You're blessed that you've come to me, Bosco said. We thought that you, got, we thought that you girls might refuse us. You'll be OK. Bosco was 19. Three years earlier, the LRA had also kidnapped him and trained him to be a soldier. Bosco had felt himself become hardened to the killings and kidnappings he was ordered to carry out. 
but when he first saw Eunice, he fantasized of a new family that would replace the siblings and mother he had lost. He imagined that he had finally found someone to trust. She was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen. But as for Eunice, she was repulsed. I have no interest in this man, she thought. How will I get to know him when I absolutely do not want to be with him? Bosco led her to a tent constructed of tree branches with a tar plate on top, a fragile bush hut where they would begin the rest of their lives. So that's the beginning of their story. Um, and the story is about um, you know, what happens when two people um, are forced to be together. These, these two people were both abducted as children. Um, and then what happens in the choices they make, and then what happens when they both escape, and Eunice decides to reunite with Bosco, the man she was forced to be with. Um, and so I'm gonna read a little bit from later on in the story, um, after they've both escaped from the LRA and are trying to form a life together. Still, in the first years after their escape, his pain, Bosco's pain, brought on anger. Eunice assumed that he was drinking out of frustration with their son, Edmund. Their son was having seizure-like spells. Bosco became aggressive and would bark orders at Eunice, behavior that reminded her of being in captivity. I was not happy either, but he chose to drink, she, she said. She cried as we talked. She could surprise you with her loveliness. One day she wore a pink, pale pink billowing blouse made of light cotton and a purple checkered scarf. She glowed, and the angles of her face were delicate and striking. In those moments, it was difficult to imagine her life of captivity. It hurt me so much, she said of Bosco's behavior. After four unhappy years, Bosco's relatives intervened, pressuring him to cut back on his drinking. He started receiving counseling from a local organization and carpentry training from another. Eunice, meanwhile, tried to keep the past at bay. Her way of making the most of the present was to not think about the pains of her abduction in the bush and to push those memories down when they surged forward. She needed to quell her doubts about Bosco. She knew that deep down, he was good. Nearly all the women she knew from the LRA who had escaped were with their rebel husbands. I wanted to be with him, to be happy in our marriage, she told me. She had made up her mind early on. I always wanted to be with just one man. She was sometimes reasoning with herself. He took care of me when I was in the bush. That's why I came back safely. But in their community, there was pervasive discrimination. It was not easy to join community groups, and neighbors complained that they brought back evil when their son became sick. Both wished that they had undergone a proper reconcilia reconciliation ceremony, an elder-guided ritual called Mato Put that brought victims and perpetrators together in a process of confession, compensation, and forgiveness. At the end, they drank a bitter herb from the same gourd with the vow, let's all drink from this bitterness so that we do not get into this again. They believed a cleansing ceremony would have been enough to rid them of the spirits they killed, but the process was too expensive for them. They needed money and animals they didn't have. Several people had stopped Bosco over the years since he had returned and asked if he was the one who killed the son or daughter or brother or other relative of a community member. People confronted me and said I had beaten or killed their relatives, he said, but that could even be my first time meeting them. I didn't know them. I told them it was not me. I'm from here and cannot kill anyone from the same place, but I could tell from their moods that they did not believe me, Bosco recalled. 
When they wouldn't stop asking him, Bosco pretended that he had to make a phone call and then got away. Perhaps, he admitted to me, when he was young and first abducted, he could have killed residents from around there, but he did not remember. I think in a um, perhaps a more typical um, portrayal of this kind of narrative, and I think it's worth pointing out that um, some of these stories, at least this is my interpretation, tell me if I'm wrong, some of these narratives you chose because they... Um, they are somewhat emblematic, like Eunice and Bosco aren't unique at, at all in terms of um, people who were forced, uh, who were kidnapped as children, as teenagers, and then forced to marry and then try to repair their lives after escaping. Uh, some are a little bit more exceptional, um, like Biram, for example, um, and um, Anisha, uh, perhaps. Yeah, or, or I should not, yeah, I mean, okay. not so much. Okay. I mean, I mean, Aisha is the story of a, a teenage girl in Somalia who's playing basketball um, at risk to herself. But, I mean, she's one of hundreds of girls yeah, playing basketball in yeah. Somalia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that in perhaps um, either maybe in a more typical portrayal of a story like Eunice and Bosco's or maybe in a shorter form, like a, um, even in the sort of a, um, a longer excerpt or a piece of reportage, typical piece of reportage, we wouldn't really have so, so much time spent on the aftermath after they, after they'd escape. We might stop their story. Um, we might leave their story at the point where they escaped. We might leave their story at the point which they returned home and reconciled with their family. But you spend a lot of time on the really complicated dynamics and tensions with the community that they return to and some of the reasons why um, I mean the, the Eunice gives, gives her own has her own reasons for staying with Bosco but can you talk about some of the other women who who uh, returned to their communities and decided to stay with their husbands um, and some of the other um, some of the other ways in which uh, people who, former rebels, had to deal with challenges as, as well as members of the community had to deal with the daily reminder of what had happened to their loved ones. Yeah, so in this book I'm really interested in um, the moral greys, as I call them, um, trying to point out that um, a lot of people aren't just good or just bad and that there's a lot of in-between, even the people that I admire um, and write about in this book. And this was the story with the most moral um, grace because um, I'm talking about a couple whose first experience together was of, was of rape and how they proceeded to build their lives from there. And as you say, like they're not the only couple who are like this, but they're a little bit unique in the fact that a lot of the other couples I met who were like them I could tell through extended time and interviews with them that they, um, their, their feelings were more mixed. Um, a lot of the women went back to the, the men they were paired with in the bush because they felt like they couldn't find better partners anyway. There was so much stigma around the people who were abducted that when they got back, you know, people whispered about them. They looked at them with you know, um, a certain kind of air. And sometimes even when the women did decide to get new partners, um, whenever trouble arose in the marriage, the new partners would blame their wives and say, oh, it's because you brought bad spirits back from the bush. And so, but Eunice and Bosco were one couple where I felt like 
through their own words, through their behavior, through just spending a lot of time with them, their bond did feel more genuine. And, you know, they're living in this place where, you know, it's not as just simple as victims living next to perpetrators. Because how do you categorize someone who was forced to do a lot of the atrocities um, that they were forced to commit? Um, how, you know, what is the in-between? between being a victim and a perpetrator, and, mm -hmm. and how do all of these people live side by side? You mm -hmm. know, the mother whose son was abducted and who never came back, next to the couple who did come back, next to the family who may have had relatives harmed by mm -hmm. the people who came back. So it was mm -hmm. a very tricky, volatile situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to shift a little bit to what's been happening um, more recently in the news, which, um, and this is not putting anyone on the spot, but just a, sh a show of hands, has anyone read about the recent bombings in Mogadishu? Right, um, has anyone seen any hashtag I am Mogadishu or I stand with hearts and prayers? Right, so um, I think that more than, the way that um, a lot of English-speaking countries, let's say, let's just a single out the, the state, but um, but the fact that the Harvey Weinstein story is still dominating a lot of social media, but we're not, um, but we're not spending any time uh, acknowledging or thinking of ways in which we can show solidarity to the victims of the recent bombing, where almost 300 people died. I mean, this. Can you talk a little bit about the? Um, this isn't anything that is this new, the way that we think about tragedy that happens in other parts of the world to brown and black and you know, non-white uh, people. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the, um, what your hopes are for a book like this in, in light of this pervasive, um, I don't know whether I should call it blindness or this, you know, this sort of lack of empathy. Actually, empathy is a word that you use in the very beginning of the book about how you felt that um, by showing more empathy in your reporting, um, you could get in more into people's uh, lives and show that their lives weren't that different or these people aren't that different, essentially, from anybody else in any other part of the world. So, Yeah, I mean, I think a problem is, is that... You know, the reason I feel like when an attack happens um, in Paris or elsewhere in the West and then there's so much attention and then it happens in Somalia um, is because of the, the way we tell stories about each of these places. I think that the way we tell stories, um, especially about Africa and people in Africa, um, often prevents readers, people in far off places from, from establishing any kind of connection or imagining any kind of humanity in those places. I think when people hear news of like an attack that kills hundreds of people, they can't, they often don't imagine, you know, um, a mother um, and, and what, you know, losing her, her children or they don't imagine, you know, professionals who may have been on their way to work and suddenly this happened or school children on the bus and and I think it's because, you know, unfortunately these places have become defined by stereotypes and cliches. You know, Somalia, we think war, terrorism, destruction. And that lack of humanization um, seeps into everything. It seeps into um, the way we think about people in those places. Mm -hmm. 
And and that's, you know, and that, so the burden does really, a lot of it does fall on, on journalists, on storytellers. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we conjure these places for the people who are reading it? Um, and it hasn't always, you know, been that great. In fact, mm-hmm. it's often not been that great. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, I mean, even so, I have a story talk, in this talk book. A li- sorry, before, sorry. Yeah. I do want to definitely talk about Aisha, but can you, um, when you say, the way that we talk about these stories uh, from Africa, just to talk about Africa, and they haven't been that great. Say a little bit more about why you think it hasn't been that great to date. Well, I mean, the, I, the very idea of, of foreign correspondence is a very colonial idea. Um, it was all about sending Western correspondence to, um, to, to different places in order to interpret what was going on for Western audiences. And, and so oftentimes, especially with Africa, um, the, the, the way that correspondents approached their subjects, approached the places, was from a very uh, colonial gaze. It was from a gaze of superiority, or at least, at the very least, um, it was out of an approach of pity as opposed to any kind of empathy. It was, it was, and pity is a very alienating emotion because it makes you write about um, your subjects from a distance and, you know, kind of fail to kind of understand their motivations or try to relate to their motivations and their circumstances and their interests and desires and hopes. And so once that tradition began, I I think, you know, it was was hard for people to break out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of what we have to overcome right now Mm -hmm. in terms of telling stories. I agree. And I think also... Um, I wonder whether you'd agree that another reason why hasn't been we haven't done a great job of it so far is because of the limitations of the form of classic, say, daily um, newspapers that you can only delve so much into a person's life. And then when you do hear from uh, people who are at the centre of a human rights issue or a tragedy, there's only so many, even when it's online, and length shouldn't be a limitation, but there's only so much space given kind of i mean i was i was looking at the coverage of uh the las vegas attack recently and just seeing the way you know in the washington post and all these newspapers in the days after the attack the incredible profiles of the victims mm-hmm. so moving the stories of the people who got caught in this attack it made it feel so real and emotional for me and that like never happens for attacks in Somalia. It like never happens for other places. You know, we just hear the news of the initial blast, and then it just fades into nothing. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, you know, then on yeah. to the next one. Mm. So I do think, I mean, there is space for it. It just depends on the will of the editor to run it and the mm-hmm. will of um, the correspondent to, to mm-hmm. write it as well. I guess I was trying to, trying to sneakily make a case for long form. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. But, um, but no, I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that you can't because we, I mean, um, there are so many, um, so many formats these days that do focus on the human story and are thinking about, um, uh, are thinking about uh, short attention span uh, formats. But, uh, but I, I do, I, I, I believe strongly that we, there's only so much you can do, even when you do give that space to to go in into. Uh, well, this person was a teacher and a father of three, and you know and, um, that you you need something like this. You need to to create um, more space to really get into people's inner lives and to really capture the nuance, because only then can you 
get a more complete understanding of of an issue from um, from the perspective of someone who's lived through it. Yeah, um, there's only so much room that you can make for that in a shorter format. So yay, long form uh, storytelling. Um, so when you were talking about Somalia, you said that people, you know, first the stereotypical perception is, oh, it's war-torn, it's, you know. Um, the first thing people think of when they think of Somalia, it doesn't tend to be basketball, but, um, but your uh, subject, Aisha, she's, she's kind of a badass in this book. I really liked her. Can you tell us a little bit about her and how you, um, how you met her, what her, what her life is like? Yeah. Um... Well, actually, a good way might be just to read a little page, um, but just kind of to, to sum it up briefly, I had um, heard about girls who were playing basketball in Somalia at risk to their lives um, because extremists and conservative men in Somali society um, don't approve of girls playing sports. They don't approve of them um, wearing shirts and pants and, and being active outside. And you know, it's probably as typical as teenager girls anyway, anywhere, they're going to, they are going to do it anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was an interesting to see. And I'll just read two pages from that. And also, I mean, also when I went to Somalia, I mean, I also had preconceptions about it too, because I mean, it was the most dangerous place I had ever reported. And I had only heard certain things about it as we were talking about. So my own, um, preconceptions were challenged and I write about that a little bit yeah you don't let yourself off the hook I don't yeah book, which is really yeah. refreshing yeah. when I went to Mogadishu it was barely like what I expected I imagined a bombed out bombed out landscape of terror attacks and gun battles which was true and I thought people would be confined inside longing for indulgences they once enjoyed but before I even landed in April 2016 Ifra my 23-year-old interpreter asked if I could bring her something from Nairobi, Kenya, where I was taking a flight to the Somali capital. Would I mind packing a bottle of tequila? As I bought one in a duty-free store in the airport, the shop employees advised me on the best way to stow it in my luggage to avoid it being detected by the Mogadishu airport staff who searched your suitcases for contraband when you landed. I would have to keep it in my tote bag because, as it dawned on me, alcohol is banned in Somalia. As I landed in Mogadishu and arrived at the inspectors, I wonder why I'd ever agreed to bring tequila to a conservative Muslim country, but I made it through undetected. I had arranged to stay at a place called Peace Hotel, where aid workers, foreign correspondents, and other Western visitors like to put themselves up. A concierge of sorts from the hotel met me at arrivals and ushered me outside into a dense heat that slathered my skin. He walked me to the parking lot, past a checkpoint where a security guard was only letting in people with passports and tickets, to another man who guided me into an armored black sport utility vehicle and then climbed into the driver's seat. The door was so heavy it took several tries for me to close it. We drove out of the airport, through more checkpoints manned by Ugandan soldiers who looked bored and wary, and then by the Green Zone, where the United Nations, foreign embassies, and African Union peacekeepers all shared a fortified base. After a few moments, we reached the hotel. When I asked the receptionist why I needed an armored car for the short ride from the airport, she told me, we, she told me with delight that it would withstand bomb that it would withstand bomb blasts. You would just bounce, she said. I had come to Mogadishu to meet the girls playing basketball, despite the threats to their lives. I had seen a photo essay of some of the players a few years earlier and thought they were some of the bravest people I had ever heard of. 
It was, it was both an ordinary and rare kind of bravery, the kind that they didn't think about every day because they were just trying to live their lives, but that was incredible considering the danger they face. Aisha was now 17. When we first met at a game, I was talking to a group of giggly players in the bleachers, and she came and sat next to us. Without much prompting, Aisha immediately began telling me about some of her perilous encounters. Beautiful and outspoken, her face was endearingly expressive. She had a tiny gold nose ring that it took a few long looks at her to notice. She liked to talk a lot in her scratchy high voice while gesturing with her hands. Aisha occasionally stopped to think for a moment by breathing out a hmm or ha, and, that, and then kept talking for as long as she could. At practice, her coach made her do push-ups when she didn't stop talking. She had a compulsive need to be honest about what she thought and felt. When she asked me if I was dating anyone, and I said I wasn't, she said matter-of-factly to her friend in Somali, she's the same age as my mother. One morning, a couple weeks after we met, Aisha invited me to her half-sister's home. She was wearing a hot pink jilbab, a head covering that swept around her face and down past her waist, with a, with a long yellow skirt and a blue floral design. She wore wedged sandals. When she sat down, though, I noticed black track pants peeking out from underneath the bottom of her skirt. I usually wear them, she said, grinning. I observed that she seemed somewhat small for basketball. Yeah, I'm short, but there are a lot of players who are short and really good, she said. The playing should be from your heart and not dependent on how tall you are. She had a game that night, and she promised that she would point out a girl who was tall, but who didn't know how to shoot. So when, in that story, you know, I do talk about all the threats that she goes through and being held up at gunpoint just because she's coming from the basketball court. But then I also try to include the other parts of her life, the fact that she liked to go to illegal clubs at night, despite the fact that it was risky, so she could like dance with her boyfriend and her friends, and that, um, yeah, and that she had like such a... Um, incredible personality because I mean as I discovered going there you know I'm going to nightclubs I'm going to restaurants on the beach that had just been bombed by Al-Shabaab a couple weeks earlier mm -hmm. um, in a sense war was like kind of the the background of people's lives mm -hmm. it was just one part of it mm -hmm. and so it was important to kind of show that people had other things going on too yeah um, you also talked about the um the Basketball Federation, and I have to say, I've never found sports bureaucracy so fascinating as in this narrative, just all the different, um, all the different forces that were trying to stop these girls from playing, girls and women, young women playing basketball, um, and how they, um, how a lot of these uh, girls and young women, they, they, um, they kept going partly because they kept each other going, they kept turning up, but also um, because of, and again, um, this goes back to the whole kind of it takes a village um, idea that these these girls wouldn't be playing basketball if it weren't for, um, for the women before them who played as girls and who are now often coaching. Often their mothers. Yeah, yeah, often their mothers and yeah. at risk. You know, even the coaches were have been, are being targeted, right, or continue to be targeted. It's incredible. Um, I... Um, do you want a couple of tricky questions, or do you want to <laughs> keep it pleasant? Because I do have a couple of burning questions for you. Um, I mean, it's a burning question. Then. All right, burning questions. So um, in the very beginning of the book, uh, you talked about how when you first did your internship in Uganda, it was the first time you were in Africa as an adult, um, and that initially you felt, um, you felt like an... 
You said feeling neither wholly American nor Nigerian. I'd come to see myself as an outsider in both as an outsider in both places and observer at the fringes. But then, um, when you returned after several years in and out of Africa, becoming familiar with so many of its cultures and parts, I no longer felt like an outsider. The continent had become a second home. Um, when we're doing our oral histories at Voice of Witness, we think a lot about insider-outsider dynamics. Some of the people who conduct our interviews who helm our books, sometimes they're from the community in which they're conducting these um, these interviews. Sometimes they're not. Even if they're from the community, they have um, moved away, got an education, become a journalist or an attorney or working in the social justice human rights field. And when they go back home for Thanksgiving and they see their old school friends, they're, they're not they talk about having like, this kind of uh, nebulous inside-outsider position that is interesting, can sometimes be an advantage, sometimes a disadvantage. So even if you, um, even if you felt very much like Nigeria was a second home to you, can you talk a little bit about um, how the subjects, or how you, you sense the subjects perceived you? Did they see you as someone that, that they could relate to? Um, or, did, or was there some of that kind of um, power dynamic or kind of othering that you had to kind of overcome or negotiate? Yeah, I mean, you know, even though I do have Nigerian heritage, I mean, I am American, I am Western, and my subjects knew that. And so that's automatically, like, the biggest barrier that you have to get um, you have to get through as, as an American journalist um, writing a, reporting abroad um, is, is you want to gain your subject's trust, but the fact is that you are from a different culture, you have your own motivations, your subjects don't know your motivations or sometimes suspicious. Um, but you know one thing that I was aided in in working on the continent is, is that African heritage, um, that West African heritage because you know even some of, some of my subjects have told me that, simply by virtue of like sharing the same skin color, it does reduce the barrier like a little bit. It does help, it did help them relate more to me. Um, you know, that's not all that was required. I mean, you know, it was also required spending time with them and explaining and talking with them and um, explaining what I was doing, but I think it did help. Um, you know, there's something about working in a place where even if you're not from there, being able to blend in and being able to um, at least talk about um, the, like the share things you have in common that helps. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's uh, there's an oral historian um, that some of you may know, uh, may have heard of, called um, or read some of his work, Alessandro Portelli, and talks about the um, some of the advantages of being an outsider as well. Um, and he said, when I first started doing this work, I was afraid that people would resent me because I'm such an outsider. I didn't find much negative reaction. I think basically it's because I didn't know much and I wasn't in a position to teach anybody anything. It was a lesson in the methodology of fieldwork. Um, the most important thing I had to offer were my ignorance and desire to learn. I was not, I think he really... Uh, minimizes the amount of research he, he does for his projects. But um, I was not there to study them, but to learn from them. It was what I didn't know that encouraged people to talk to me, knowing that they were helping instead of being helped. Um, so 
um, so when we um, when we uh, train our interviews, some of these are very experienced journalists. Some of them are first time interviewers. We we always ask them to try and think about how can you, you know you can't ever. Um, obliterate the power imbalance because you are the one going in with a tape recorder and um, in a sense taking the story, facilitating the story and then you know, putting it out into the world. But there are, there are little things that you can do to, to achieve what, um, what Portelli also calls a, a mutual sighting. So at least they say, oh, I, I see you as a human being, you see me as a human being. And what I really like about this book is that you, um, you talk about your, your own um, positionality. Um, you, you reference in a way that's not obtrusive, but actually is very illuminating uh, your relationship to some of these stories based on your own heritage and your own position. Um, and um, and sometimes um, we suggest some of the most um, uh, mundane things, like let the narrator choose where and when the interview will take place. Let them have final approval over the over their narrative. For us, our format's very different because it's as I, we were talking about before. With our narratives, it's about eighty percent the person's first account first hand account and then the rest is more of the authorial voice or the um the um the the contextual information um and so we need to have their final sign off you know just did we get anything wrong does it sound like you what kind of steps did you take to ensure that not only um that your subjects um uh, felt comfortable um but also that to reassure yourself and to reassure them that you were doing right by their story? Yeah, I mean, um, because of a lot of stories in these books started as articles and ethically, you know, I can't show them the stories before they run, I thought it was important to at least um, keep them clued in throughout the process. So, you know, not just telling them why I'm here and I'm writing about you, but also explaining why I'm asking you so much about your childhood. Why do I want you to recount this over and over again? Um, this is the kind of story I'm, I'm trying to tell about you. This is what I'm trying to say. Um, just so that they can feel included, um, kind of as you talk about. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, I, I, I try to work with people who were reliable and trustworthy. You know, when I'm working with Eunice and Bosco, they, they prefer to speak um, in a choli, which I don't understand. So I worked with an interpreter who not only spoke perfect Acholian English, but who also had a similar experience. He was abducted as a child soldier. So he actually helped me conduct these interviews with more, I think, sensitivity than I would have done had I just been on my own. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, and uh, yeah, and then fact checking. I mean, that was also key. Um, you know, getting in touch with everyone and trying to verify everything, um, often many times. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that often gave them a sense of what I was writing about and what I was trying to say. Mm. Have um, Have any of the subjects in your book seen seen the book yet, or is is that something you're planning to do at a later point? Yeah, at a later point, but. Because of them, some of them did start as stories, some of the subjects have seen it when it was in sh much shorter article form. Um, and yeah, the, the, the response was generally positive. I mean, I think they quibbled with some of my opinions of them, but I don't think they can always be. 
Yeah, something that's something that's really um, fascinating to me is um, is the different different um, levels of ownership that for us narrators feel about their story. Sometimes they'll just say, "Yeah, you did a good job. You got it right." You, um, um, but there are some narrators who, um, after we've published the story, it's in the book, it's out in the world, they'll say, oh, the story that I wrote, and even though they told their story but they didn't write it, they did give us feedback about, oh, you know, I, don't, I want that taken out, or no, actually it was this day and time, not that day and time. But it, even though that's not technically true that they wrote the story, it's really, it's a... It makes me feel really happy that because it means that they feel such ownership over the story, which I know is, is a, a different genre. But um, but it leads me to my next question: was that as um, as people who um, I'm just going to lump us in this general uh, group of human rights storytellers, um, what do what um, what responsibility do we owe to people that? We, whose stories we're trying to um, to facilitate, draw, use, um, disseminate. Apart from what we've touched on already, but um, um, but what are some of the things that we and other journalists or oral historians, human rights uh, documentarians, need to be really careful and conscious of when? When talking, when interviewing people who have experienced and sometimes still dealing with the after effects of trauma, and um, and not maybe just uh, not just themselves, but um, uh, subsequent generations as well. Yeah. Well, so in one point in the book, I talk about how um, Eunice and Bosco, the couple in Uganda, um, they have, I think now, three children, um, and the first time I was there reporting on this. Apparently, their oldest son had overheard some of the interviews I'd done with him. And when I got back for the second trip, um, he was disturbing, I mean, he was ex exhibiting kind of disturbing medical behavior, um, kind of seizure-like spells. And, um, and also kind of saying things um, that Yundus and Bosco believed their, their victims would have once said to them. He was exhibiting signs of, of what I called in the book um, secondary trauma. And part of it may have been related to the fact that he did overhear some of the things his parents told me while I was interviewing them. And so in, the part, in part of the book, I do talk about how, um, you know, as a journalist, when you're interviewing people, especially ones who've gone through difficult things, it's almost like conducting this invasive, extensive procedure. You know, you're asking them to recount um, stories, whether of joy or pain, over and over again, and how do you, um, you know, compromise that with your duty to like not do more harm, because um, you know your subjects are giving you the most valuable thing they have, which is their story, and often not for anything in return. So um, yeah, I think it's something that that we always have to be aware of and kind of struggle with, and. You know, even when you are interviewing someone with, with as much sensitivity and empathy as you can, um, in these kind of difficult situations, you know, you, you have to accept that this is a potential side effect, that you may re-traumatize people, that you may, and you have to kind of weigh, is it worth it then? Is it worth it? 
Um, and you have to kind of also, I think, determine if your subjects really want to be a part of this, if it really is helpful for them to tell you their stories, or if it's just something they're kind of going along with for any reason. And part of that, I think, comes from establishing real relationships with your subjects, not just popping in for like, you know, an afternoon and being like, so tell me about when you killed someone, but actually spending real time there mm -hmm. and um, establishing that trust. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, unfortunately there are journalists and interviewers who do lead with that. So the worst thing that ever happened to you, let's talk about that. Um, and I think also it's worth noting that a lot of people who get interviewed, um, they have, sometimes it's the first time they've told their story, which is, you know, very a very delicate um, um, thing to negotiate. Sometimes they've told their story again and again and again, but in a very rehearsed way because they had to get something um, in return, you know, maybe they were talking to a refugee caseworker or trying to convince someone to let them through um, through a border uh, patrol. And um, something that we, um, something I think is really important is to always, um, yeah, to go at it really incrementally, right? The, the relationships that you build over time with your subjects, they'd seen the short versions of their stories for the most part. And then, you know, as you got deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think, I think just keeping the control in their hands. So if they wanted to say, I don't want to be part of this um, now, it's just really causing problems or da da da, you know, that's, that's their prerogative. And we've actually, in a couple of cases, we've had, um, we've had, uh, I think in, the, in 10 years of collecting oral histories, we've had maybe one or two narrators who've pulled out of books um, way after, well after the narrative has been completed and we can't argue with that. Um, and also we, um, we do a lot of pre-interviews as well. So sometimes we, um, uh, when, when it seems that even just doing like a 10 or 15 minute piece and you're not talking about the, you know, the trauma at all, you can tell that just the experience of talking to an outsider is challenging but we try and be on our part we try and be really careful and go through mutually trusted sources like it could be their, their social worker it could be their attorney or it could be someone they've worked with and you know a, a community liaison so that we um at least they have a better sense than we do of whether someone's ready to, to share their story or not and sometimes you can go through all of that and then sometimes the book comes out and they've given their approval and then then they start, um, then signs of um, re-traumatization come up. So there's, I think, um, yeah, you should, yeah, I think we, should, we have a responsibility to, to, um, to do due do, do diligence as much as possible and then, uh, but also accept possible consequences as well for things that we didn't foresee. Um, we didn't touch on Biram, um, his stories also, Incredible, or is there any, anything else that you'd like to touch uh, on? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the other two stories we didn't talk about are, yeah, about Biram, who is a radical anti-slavery activist in Mauritania, who's fighting against the fact that in Mauritania there's still it's the last place with still widespread um, prevalence of slavery. And then, what was the other story? Oh, and yeah, and then in Nigeria. Um, well, we talked a little bit about Your Nigeria. Your publicist was, was just like, <laughs> yeah. Tearing her um, Yeah, but, but basically, I mean, this book, it's just, um, you know, in these intertwined stories, 
um, I'm trying to kind of show the range of resistance, you know, from a man who is an activist who's willing to die and has been jailed several times for the cause of mm -hmm. ending slavery, you know, all the way down to a girl who's just trying to play basketball and live mm -hmm. her life and is not trying to be anyone's hero or role, role mm -hmm. model. And I'm just trying to show the choices people make, um, the way their lives were before they found themselves in extremist situations, what they did during, how they got out of it, mm -hmm. how they're trying to live now. Um, yeah, just trying to show the many sides to all of these lives. Yeah, and I think I think um, in the book you also do a really great job of of providing context for some of these experiences as well, and and giving and there's only so much you can do with within one book, but also um, giving at least a sense of how some of these seeds of extremism get planted and how in what conditions they flourish, and that um, and that uh, and what what people do to rationalize slavery um, in their society. You know, you actually have one person who works with Biram, um, the, who's a white Moor, and says some pretty um, challenging uh, statements about, um, about can, I, can I just read that? Because I, I actually put in my sticky note, white, white Moor therapy, um, <laughs> because it was just alarming to me. Um, and I think, um, we have conversations about white frailty in this country, but I think this is quite unique. He says that, um, so this is someone who's actually on the side of um, trying to... Yeah, he, yeah. he's an act, He's an anti-slavery yeah. activist, but he's, he's of the white, more ethnic group who owned slaves in that country. And so he owned a slave until his, I don't know, until he was a young man or even older. Mm -hmm. and he's trying to, I'm asking him about that experience. Yeah, do you want to read it? I'll read. Okay. Yeah. He says... Um, he said that um, the former master needs therapy more than the former slave because of trauma resulting from the rupture between his sense of racial superiority and the necessity of the modern world. So in public, he said, white Moors echoed the government's line, slavery no longer exists, and talk of it suggests manipulation by the West, an act of enmity towards Islam or influence from the worldwide Jewish conspiracy. And then you wrote... Um, that his sense of fragility as a white Moor was honest but stunningly ignorant of the emotional and physical damage that Harriton carried. Um, I thought it was thought it was quite stunning um, to hear that um, come out of this ally's mouth. Yeah, I mean, it just shows kind of the universal universality of these a lot yeah. of these things. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that. Um, yes, slavery is an outdated institution to us, but it's still going on in this country and the way people are both rationalizing it and then also resisting against it. The, the activist I write about this book told me he was inspired by the civil rights movement and the way he kind of leads aggressive confrontations and sit-ins and things like that. And then, yeah, even his allies who are of the slave-owning class still can't be that honest about the practice. Mm -hmm. All right, so thank you so much for coming out thank and for you. your great questions and for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. 